Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome everybody to Nightlight. So good of you to drop in and share your time with us. It's always exciting on Tuesday nights because Mark always has such great guests. First of all, I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. Please check him out on the internet. It can can <laughs> oh check out Ken Ken and his wife Deb. Uh, They're native storytellers, and they have an amazing story to tell as far as how they've kept history. It's Ken Quiethawk. And he has always been generous with us and done the intros for us, and I can't imagine another voice leading us into another exciting evening. It is Tuesday night, and Mark has a great guest. Uh, Always exciting to see the amazing people that he finds or that find him and the topics that they bring to us, because it certainly does enlighten and expand our, our, our knowledge and our understanding of the life that we're involved in, and it gives us another, another twinge on the perspective with which we view our realities. So, Mark, welcome to your show, and it's all yours. Happy St. Patrick's Day. To you, too. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, uh, idiocracy isn't sci-fi speculation. It's a documentary. You know, it's a rough week when the other day was Friday the 13th, and the listeners are tuned in behind their toilet paper fortresses. People have credited the Mothman for West Virginia not having any confirmed virus cases until later today. And uh, you know, we've been stuck on subscriber 666 all, all Sunday and even most of uh, yesterday. Uh, it's, we, we finally got over that hurdle. Um, you know, 
but we don't have to worry about uh, social distancing and having more than 10 people congregate. We break the rules on night light. Um, let's escape from the virus hysteria and uh, get into a nostalgic theme that I'm developing for a couple shows. Uh, we're going to visit the Twilight Zone and learn about Bruce Springsteen's rise to superstardom. Our guest is award-winning illustrator in the comic book style, author, historian, and lecturer Arlen Schumer. Arlen was a featured speaker at the Twilight Zone at 60 conference last October. That's where we met. Uh, Arlen brings his artistic eye to analyzing the uh, disturbing and surrealistic images in his book, Visions from the Twilight Zone. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, several more of his books and videos uh, th throughout the evening. You know, we only have two hours. But I'm, I'm already hoping he'll uh, c come back for more discussions. But uh, you know, if you want to extend your understanding of our guest, uh, you can go to his website, arlenschumer.com. That is A-R-L-E-N-S-C-H-U-M-E-R.com. Hi, Arlen. How are you? Hey, hey, Mark. How are you? And hello, Barbara. Hi. I'm so happy to hey. be here. We're glad you're here. Got you for uh, another hour and 55 minutes. It's going to be cool. Uh, yeah, this is you know, Night, Nightlight Part 2 is you know, a history-themed show. And we deal more frequently with Atlantis than uh, the 20th century, but that changed last night with Barbara and Len's uh, you know, excellent discussion on the reptilians and World War II information. But, uh, you know, you're a authority on the post-World War II generation uh, and the unique art form that those, so, so many different artists created. Um, and we got uh, you know, resurgence of uh, comic book stores at malls, you know, uh, the Fantastic Four movie uh, series that came out just a few years ago. You got uh, Dick Tracy was about 20, 25 years ago, Iron Man. Uh, all, all those movies pioneered uh, a lot of special effects. Um, where did you get involved in all this artistic, you know, renaissance that was developing in, you know, the uh, post-World War II America? Well, I'm on the tail end of the baby boom generation. I was born in 1958, which is, of course, coincidentally, ironically, exactly when the Twilight Zone's pilot episode was shot. And I grew up in the 60s, which, you know, was a golden age of pop culture and art and uh, in every medium 
um, across the board, movies, television, rock and roll, comics. Um, so the Twilight Zone specifically, Rod Serling was a visionary of what the 60s was going to be about. And in the Twilight Zone, which takes place in the early 60s, they're a mirror of the Kennedy years, which were not the 50s, obviously, but the 60s, as we know, it didn't become the 60s, really, until Kennedy was assassinated. Those early years were these years of optimism, forward thinking, the new frontier, all that energy and optimism. And the Twilight Zone took place during those same exact years where Serling and companies, fellow writers, were laying out a lot of the themes of what would later become the counterculture. The Twilight Zone was about looking at reality and imagining it differently. You know, the word surreal in French means, sir, on top of reality. The surrealists wanted people to step back from their reality and judge it fresh. And what the Twilight Zone really was, was saying to people, what if things were different? What if there wasn't prejudice and bigotry? What if, you know, all these ideas about the individual and the state and man's place in society and all of these ideas that, you know, Serling was able to get across in a commercial medium like television was astounding, which is why we're still talking about the Twilight Zone today, why there's a new Twilight Zone TV series, because the themes that we're dealing with uh, haven't changed, and that's really what great art is. It's of its time, and it's timeless. So, you know, listening to the introduction of your show, which is a very heavy-duty, philosophical, spiritual introduction, but that's exactly the way I think about the Twilight Zone, is that in its words and its images, it's, you know, my book is called Visions from the Twilight Zone. It's the television images of the show treated like black and white art photography, but it's also the philosophical visions of Serling and his fellow writers that I treat like poetry and I typeset it to read like poetry. So what I do is I take uh, various lines of dialogue or narration that had a philosophical surreal edge to them and I typeset them to read like poetry and then I match them with black and white images from the series episodes that could be juxtaposed so that one image from one episode would go with the dialogue for another one. Mm-hmm. So for instance, I'm just reading from my book in front of me here, and this sums up what I'm trying to say about what the Twilight Zone writers tried to say. These men wrote about life and about the dignity of the human spirit and about love the strange and wondrous mysticism that is a simple act of living. Now, what I just read was a combination of dialogue from one episode and narration from another. But if you see it in my book, it's laid out like poetry and juxtaposed with images from the show. So I'm a big believer in pop culture as being as deep and as philosophical as any of the the fine arts, whether it be literature or um, painting or you name it. But I found the spiritual and the philosophical in the 
things like the Twilight Zone, the superheroes and the comic book art that I grew up with in the 60s, um, you know, the music, rock and roll, Bruce Springsteen later on, um, all of these things have become passions of mine that I've been able to turn into a livelihood and into a career of basically taking the things that I loved as a child, whether it was comic book art, Twilight Zone, um, imagery, and recontextualizing it in new forms, whether it's coffee table art books or whether it's my own illustration, I'm trying to reflect the influences that made me become an artist and then turn them into art that is both of itself and yet self-reflective of all the influences that I'm basically feeding back. So I treated the Twilight Zone like a coffee table art book. But it's really my homage to the Twilight Zone itself because it's really just me as, a, as an editor and graphic designer arranging the images and the words so that it's a coffee table art book experience. At the same time, it's trying to capture what the Twilight Zone was in coffee table art book form. And Arlen, you... Uh, bring up in your uh, Silver Age of Com- Comics uh, book, you know, the Golden Age was about 1930 to 50. And it was basically uh, the good guys versus the bad guys. Uh, the Silver Age is overlapping you know when you're born and and growing up and you, you draw our attention to uh, you know there's a lot more uh, cultural issues going on from like 1956 to 72 uh, you know the the cold war vietnam is starting uh, more of a uh, anti-establishment feel uh, uh, all all that is you know really interesting uh, study of that time period it it was uh, it was there Um, what you know Rod's got started about what 1959 with uh the twilight zone but it took uh about 10 years for you know his planet of the apes to appear about the same time 2001 was uh coming out Uh, you know that's a major contribution to uh the sci-fi theme uh Next year is Woodstock. You, you, you know, you you're covering all this really, uh, providing all this really interesting uh, h- historical documentation in those books and how arts is reflected in them. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to ask me a question. Uh, I, I was just kind of like just <laughs> oh. r- r- rambling about. Uh, it, you know, pulling information from uh, two of your books, but you know, one of the most um, 
striking images from you know, that about the time that President Ken- Kennedy was assassinated that you have in your Twilight Zone book is the photo of Rod Serling, uh, President Kennedy, and uh, Sean Connery as James Bond. I, uh, all, all, all that is just emerging at the same time too. How? Why are you including James Bond in this early '60s pop culture uh, documentation? Well, in my that's from uh, an essay in my Twilight Zone book written by the great. Village Voice film critic Jim Hoberman, basically based on my ideas at the time. And I wanted to see Serling in the early 60s as his whole visual image, those introductions. I mean, he was the only real star of the show because it was an anthology show with different actors and actresses of every episode. But Serling was the continuing visual presence. And when you look at those Twilight and introductions, they're incredibly and uh, beautifully wrought, tiny little mini masterpieces of the art of introducing. And Serling, as a visual icon with that smoking cigarette and the dark hair and the skinny black tie and the black suit, um, have become iconic unto themselves. And appearing in the early 60s, I, I used to think, they were like three cool guys in dark suits in the media in the early 60s. One was John F. Kennedy in the political realm. At the same time, starting in 1962 with the first Bond movie, Dr. No, was the appearance of Sean Connery, who was the modern action hero leading man. It all starts with Connery. Um, dark, in a dark suit, with, also with a thin tie, same time period, and then you have Rod Serling. So to me, they're the three coolest guys in the early 60s. Um, they all, like I said, they all occupy that same time period, and to me, they're, that's the, um, the trinity of um, the kind of male iconic imagery when I think of that kind of leading man of the early 60s. And in one of your you know paintings that you have on your uh, website you are uh, explaining your pa- painting penny lane um can can you tell us about you know, your creative process i i i it's really liked the images uh, from that painting, how uh, it's raining under the umbrella. Uh, You know, we're looking uh, just a few years down the road as the um, Rod's visions of uh, surrealism are D- developed and reinterpreted by other artists. Uh, 
it, uh, what was your uh, concept behind your pen, Penny Lane painting? Well, since this is not a visual show, we got to describe the image that you're talking about. It's available on my um, dedicated poster site called popcultureman.com. And there's about um, 25 images there that you can purchase as posters. And one of them is a horizontal poster based on the lyrics of Penny Lane. It was one of the assignments that I had to do a few years ago when I got my MFA degree at uh, Marywood University in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, so I got my MFA degree in 2019 because I'm a natural teacher, but I never taught technically. So um, I, I got my bachelor's degree at Rhode Island School of Design, but I wanted to get my master's. So one of the assignments um, a couple of years before was to do a poster based on music from the United Kingdom. And it was actually a poster contest uh, being run in the United Kingdom a couple of years ago. And that's how wide ranging the topic was. It had to be a poster. It had to be something about music from the United Kingdom. And that could be any time period and any interpretation of that, as long as it qualifies as a poster. So, of course, as a child of the 60s, what's the first thing I think about? I thought immediately, you know, the Beatles, what am I, you know, that's the thing I think about most when I think about England. Right? London, right? That's what mm-hmm. everybody about. Makes sense. So I must have been thinking about, okay, out of all those Beatles songs, what would make the great idea for a poster? And, you know, many of their songs, especially from their psychedelic era, um, you know, are very visual. Um, you know, you've got the great lyrics of Lennon McCartney, the great music, but I was searching for whatever song would resonate with me that would could also somehow be interpreted as a poster. And either I must've just thought about Penny Lane, maybe, maybe I listened to some Beatles songs and I came upon Penny Lane and I thought about, you know, on the one hand, you've got the lyrics, the banker never wears a Mac in the pouring rain, very strange. But then he says, Penny Lane, you know, is in my ears and in my eyes, they're beneath the blue suburban skies. And then I thought to myself, you know, that's an interesting juxtaposition. The banker wearing his Mac in the pouring rain, but at the same time, it's all about the beautiful skies. And that's a classic juxtaposition, which is what surrealism is. It's a juxtaposition of two different realities that could somehow coexist. And in my artistic visual mind, that led me to think of Magritte, the famous surrealist painter. And he did a series of paintings where they were landscapes of regular kind of suburban country areas where the sky was, was like late afternoon twilight, but the, the, the foreground, the house, the trees was nighttime. So it was this juxtaposition where how could it be daytime and nighttime in the same image at the same time? And that, 
to me was relatable visually and conceptually to McCartney's lyrics, which were both pouring rain and beautiful suburban skies. And the banker, I thought about Magritte's businessman in the bowler hat, which were basically self-portraits. And I thought that even looks like the character McCartney's singing about, the banker, the very English with the bowler hat and the parasol, the umbrella. And then I thought, you know, what about the idea that he's holding the umbrella's head, it's pouring rain, but the rain is only in the vertical dimension where his umbrella is. If you can imagine that as a vertical line, whereas the rest of the picture would be blue suburban skies of Penny Lane. And that gave me the visual idea. So I went on the internet, I found photographs of the actual Penny Lane. So I found a horizontal image, classic, symmetrical, almost like the way Stanley Kubrick might do it. Think about a horizontal poster format, not vertical, where Penny Lane is like going to a vanishing point in the center of the picture, like you're on one end of the street looking down Penny Lane, and I stuck my banker from behind. We're looking at his back, and he's right in the center of the picture in the foreground, and he's got the umbrella over his head, and it's pouring rain, but only where his umbrella is, the sky above him and down below the umbrella, it looks like pouring rain. And the rest of the picture that I actually painted, it was um, my, only my second painting in my life. I grew up doing pen and ink because that's what comp of art was. But when I got to Marywood, I had to learn how to paint. So it was only my second painting. And it came out, I thought, pretty well. And so I composed the picture to try to make it look like something Magritte would paint. And then around the circumference of the rectangular image, I put the lyrics. Um, the banker never wears a Mac in the pouring rain. Very strange. There beneath the blue suburban skies. So it kind of runs the type around the picture. And it's there at popcultureman.com. You can look at it and um, you can buy a poster of it. Or even maybe I think a t-shirt as well. It, 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 Arlen, when you know, you're working on a painting like that, you, know, you have your uh, Silver Age of Comic uh, book with the uh, you know very uh, bright colors. Uh, you know, you're just published uh, John Brown book that's. Um, basically just uh, various shades of brown and uh, well it's John white. and it's unpublished oh okay well, it, 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 your your artwork is um, diverse it grabs your attention how do you achieve those effects, uh, you know, there's you know, just your skill, but you, you, do, do you are are you, are you using uh, special software? In one of your videos, you have like that uh, a light table, uh, you know, for artists who, who might be listening 
or you know, maybe they're they'd be interested in uh, getting into uh, being an illustrator. H- how do you? What's the equipment that so- someone would need? What do you? How do you, how do you do this? Well, the way I do my illustration work, which again you can see through my website, when you go to arlenschumer.com, there's a row, a menu bar where you'll see my illustration. And that's basically in a comic book style, which means that I draw it by hand. I know a lot of artists now, they're on those um, Cintiq or Wacom tablets where you can actually put a pen to the screen and draw. Um, I haven't gotten to that point yet, mostly for financial reasons. But I basically pencil, I draw on regular paper outside the computer, but then I scan the pencil drawing into the computer. I print it out and on a light table, I flip the paper over and I ink it on the opposite side with basically black markers. Um, And then I scan that into the computer and into the Photoshop program where I basically color in Photoshop. So I try to combine the best of both worlds. And by that, I mean the hand-drawn line gives my art an organic feel where, you know, it doesn't have that cold machine-like computer feel that a lot of computer graphics these days have. I think the hand-drawn line keeps, like I said, a kind of a human organic quality. But then, God bless the computer and Photoshop, the range of coloring and effects you can get, things like blurring backgrounds to approximate, like in film, the way a background is out of focus. You can do that in artwork. Back in the day, I mean, I'm, I'm an old 20th century dinosaur, but pre-computer, if you tried an illustrative work, whether it was painting or pastels or colored pencil or any medium, if you wanted to get the effect that I just described of a film where you wanted the background to be out of focus and the foreground to be in focus, you had to artificially create that with your art. You have to draw it or paint it to look blurry and out of focus. But with Photoshop, you can get effects like that. But obviously, with any tool that is very special effects driven, I try to, again, achieve that balance between the hand-drawn art and the computer coloring where you don't use so many effects or so many, um, uh, you know, bells and whistles that that's what the viewer first notices. You know, as an illustrator, you're always illustrating a concept, an idea. It's not fine art where you're kind of expressing your own ideas and thoughts. You're in the service of either illustrating an editorial idea, an advertising idea, or you're doing a book where you're interpreting text, like let's say a children's type format. You're a slave to illustrating the text, bringing that idea that message, um, that, that oral, A-U-R-A-L component, that verbal component to life. So you want everything, your drawing, your coloring, and whatever effects you do use to always reinforce the verbal concept. That's the difference between being an illustrator and being a fine art you know, painter. Is, um, but I would even argue that in fine art, you know, every picture should tell a story. And it should be worth a thousand words. So that means, you know, your pictures should be saying something. 
So that means that as a painter or as a fine artist, you have to be a slave to that idea as well. And that's probably why I, I don't gravitate towards much fine art in museums or galleries because I was spoiled by great comic art, which even though the pictures could be beautiful, they had to tell a story. You know, they're illustrating a story, whether it was written by the artist or written by somebody else. You can't just make pretty pictures. That's bad comics. But, you know, great comic book stories spoiled me content-wise for a lot of fine art that doesn't have enough content for me. I thirst for content. And I get that in the great comic book stories and art that I grew up with that made me become an artist. And, you know, that, again, I tried to feed back in a history book my silver age of comic art coffee table book and um, my other lectures and projects uh, that are about the comic art that I grew up with and that I continue to champion as the great popular art of our time. In the same way that art historians today look back 500 years ago on the masters of the Renaissance, the human mm -hmm. figure, like Da Vinci and Raphael and those guys, Michelangelo, I believe 500 years from now, future art historians um, are going to look back on our modern masters, the human figure, Jack Kirby and Neil Adams and Jim Steranko and Gil Kane and all the men whose work I grew up with in the 60s, known as the Silver Age, that I kind of recontextualized in my coffee table art book, where once again, just like with the Twilight Zone, I treat the comic art images like art, and I treat the artist's own words describing the art, talking about the art, I treat them, I take out the original word balloons in the art, and I put the artist talking about the art. So you both look at the comic art fresh as art in a coffee table art book format, but you read it like a comic book. So it's both a giant comic book and it's a history book as well because it reflects how the art reflected the 1960s. That you have the futuristic style of Carmen Infantino, the DC Comics artist who drew The Flash in the early 60s, those Kennedy years. And then at the end of the 60s, you've got the hyper-realism of Neil Adams, which was reflective of the, the post-Vietnam more realistic, hard-bitten world we were forced to confront that we saw reflected in films like Midnight Cowboy and the films that became the 70s. And everything in between those two developments, I show how the 60s was re reflected in the art and ideas of the superheroes and the comics that traveled the 60s along with those turbulent events in the political and social and countercultural worlds. Yeah, and Arlen, speaking of the Toms affecting um, Kirby and the other authors as uh, or you know, illustrators as they're uh, developing their uh, crafts, you also have a, a really interesting uh, video on your website about 
uh, Rod Serling living in Westport and how that uh, community uh, left a legacy on Rod, even though he was there for uh, like three years. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about how, how town of Westport, Connecticut um, reappears throughout the Twilight Zone? Yeah, well, Sterling lived in Westport, which was an hour outside of New York City, kind of a wealthy white suburban area. In the 50s, it was more artistic and bohemian. A lot of art directors and people like that in the advertising fields came to live out here because it was close enough to New York City to commute in by the Metro North train line. But at the same time, it's very beautiful. It's near the Long Island Sound. It's very bucolic as well. And in the 50s, it was like I said, you know, it's funny. I Love Lucy, when they moved out of New York City in 1957 or so, they moved to where? Westport, Connecticut. Um, and Sterling, when he came from Cincinnati to New York in the early 50s to work on the new medium of live television, which was shot out in New York, he was a small town boy. He grew up in Binghamton, New York. The city was too big for him. So they settled outside and they chose Westport, which is what a lot of creative people were doing back then. And like I said, and Westport had a history of comic artists as well. Uh, the guy that created Flash Gordon, Alex Raymond, lived in Westport. Guys like Stan Drake and a whole slew of mid-20th century great comic strip artists, especially. On the backs of comic books, there used to be the we're looking for people who like to draw ads. That was for the famous artist school, which was in Westport, Connecticut, which was um, started by a famous 20th century illustrator named Albert Dorn. So there were very many um, illustrators, art directors, a lot of creative people. And to this day, Westport has a lot of creative people who basically married and had families and you know, wanted to raise them in the suburbs, but um, still be part of a cre creative community and be able back then to commute back into the city in basically about an hour. So Sterling is living in Westport in the mid 50s and he's commuting into the city to work on those live television plays. So, you know, Westport was a suburb. There was in the 50s, if you've seen The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit and Gentleman's Agreement and all these shows, you know, there was a whole kind of underbelly of things like the Jews moving in and there was a big Gentile Westport Christian community. So there was the undercurrents of that. You got to remember, there was a whole Jewish migration out of the cities into the suburbs in the post-war era. And in New England, of which Connecticut is a part, there is that old money, old school, Yankee, Gentile thing. So there were towns like Darien. If you've seen Gentleman's Agreement with Gregory Peck, there, you know, I grew up hearing this expression, the Aryans from Darien. And um, so, you know, country clubs that didn't allow Jews. And this is a whole theme in the 20th century about the Jews who entered the kind of cultural uh, worlds and told their stories. And basically, Serling witnessed a lot of that in Westport, 
um, even though it was, you know, a little more bohemian than the other wealthy white suburban areas that satellite, you know, Manhattan, whether they're in New Jersey or Long Island or Westchester County, they're all basically the same type of communities. And, you know, there was a lot of racial unrest in a lot of these communities because they were mostly white. Um, but anyway, the point is, is Serling, for those three years that he won three Emmys in a row that made his bones, there was patterns in 1955, Requiem for Heavyweight in 57, the adaptation of The Comedian. These were the Emmys Serling won while he's commuting into the city from Westport and dealing with suburban mentalities. But he got the creative clout to go to Hollywood and do The Twilight Zone. So those three years in Westport were a fertile ground for him, but he also experienced the kind of dark underbelly of suburbia at the same time. A couple years later, he's doing the Twilight Zone, and what are some of the most memorable early episodes? But there's that classic episode, Willoughby, from the first season of 1959-60, which is all about what? A creative, a guy in a Madison Avenue uh, account exec, a, a madman, so to speak, uh, and I'm quoting the TV show of 15 years ago, 10 years ago. But basically, the lead character is a harried, you know, under pressure account exec that's commuting into the city from wealthy white suburban town of Westport. And you could hear the, the train conductor say, Next stop, Westport, Saugatuck, and these are actual real stops on the Metro North train. So Serling took that experience and put it into this episode all about a man who basically doesn't want to deal with the Madison Avenue rat race. But he's got a materialist shrew of a wife who only loves him and wants him for the money he brings in so she, she can live the high life. And at one point, and I'm quoting from my own book, the lead character says, some people aren't built for competition or country clubs they wear around their neck like a badge of status or rich communities they don't belong in. You know, these are ideas that, again, taking place in 1960, forecast the counterculture revolution against the establishment and their materialist values. You know, this guy... Um, the character in Walking Distance, Garth, uh, I forget what his name is. Um, he wants to tune out and drop, you know, he wants to drop out. He's a sensitive guy that can't take the rat race and can't take the materialism. And this is how the Twilight Zone was able to forecast Sterling as a visionary, was able to lay out the themes that would become a major part of the 60s about rejecting materialism. You know, Willoughby was this fantasy world where he could just go and relax, and it was like a Curry and her eyes, Norman Rockwellian vision of this bucolic late 19th century Eden, so to speak. And in a way, that was a forecast of the kind of hippie communities that the counterculture wanted to drop out of materialist mainstream society and go to and Serling in a Twilight Zone episode <laughs> is forecasting that, but he's also drawing upon that Westport experience of having to keep up with the Joneses and commute into the city and make the money and deal with all of that. 
And, you know, again, these are issues that we're still dealing with today. They're, you know, the struggle between art and commerce, between living your life, you know, working to live and living to work. And um, there are other episodes in the Twilight Zone. Uh, the Monsters are doing Maple Street about the dark underbelly of suburbia. And the shelter where, you know, neighbors that you think, you know, we're all supposed to love and like each other. And then the minute that the SHIT hits the fan, we turn into animals. You know, with this isolation, I don't want to bring up you know what, but, you know, I remember Hurricane Sandy, uh, 2012. What was that? 2014, 16? I forget. Um, yeah, you're it's somewhere in the ballpark. Uh, yeah. the, the point is, is, you know what I remember from that? Westport wasn't that we only lost power for like two days, maybe three at the most. But we weren't hard hit like other communities. But I remember because the electricity was turned off, it was like the monsters were doing Maple Street. I remember going to my local Starbucks and people, you know, the, the, the wealthy white suburbanites were almost rioting like Lord of the Flies over plugging their chargers into the few existing outlets. So this is what Serling was saying. You peel away the thin veneer of civilization and what do you get? We're still a pack of animals. And I mean, you know, again, he gleaned some of that living in Westport, but he fed it back as a Twilight Zone episode years later in the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Um, Arlen, I just had a, a question You're talking about uh, President Kennedy uh, Rod Serling and Sean Connery um, as you know, the the male trinity from that early 60s uh, time period. Was there a female trinity type characters e- emerging at the same time? Well, you tell me, were there? I don't know, maybe Bridget Bardot. You know, there's always going to be actresses. There was Anne Margaret, but you know, if you're you know if you're talking about who the made first lady, who made an impact? Yeah, Jack Onassis made an impact as a. I mean, look, look at what Warhol. Who did he you know portray? It was Marilyn Monroe. He later did things of you know Jackie and. I'm trying to think, you know, that's an interesting question. Yeah, you know, I have to stop and think, but I don't think there were there were female visual icons. I mean, I remember Twiggy, the model in the late 60s, was a strong visual icon, uh, a female visual icon. But, um, you know, women, the whole point of women's lib and women's liberation was that they were not given the platforms that the men got. Yeah, they were singers, you know, there were the there was the Diana Ross and the Supremes and all the girl groups. Um, but if you're talking about the equivalent, were there women in the sixties that had the socio political, cultural, visual impact of or or were counterparts to Serling, Kennedy, and Connery? Uh I don't think so. Okay. Well just it's just a question, question that came in. Um, in 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 your uh, the visions of 
the Twilight Zone book. I I, I thought you did an uh, excellent job of uh, bringing together some of these uh, themes, and, and you have them grouped w- with you know, like the uh, w- robot. Uh, from the the lonely and the, the mannequins from After Hours, the, the couple episodes with um, uh, dummies. There uh, are some other doubles. It, it, it's one one of the endearing aspects of your book is the images that you put together that show this pattern of that repeats throughout the twilight zone, you know, talkie Tina, you know, would probably be a, uh, some, uh, contrast, uh, to the, uh, Maybe not so much a contrast. It's just a continuation of uh, the uh, ventriloquists. Just wanted to say how much I like that. Oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, d- um, d- yeah. Th- those are part of the interesting uh, I- images that come out of the Twilight Zone that really capture our attention. Um, do, do you find them to be more of um, this visionary um, concept that Rod was introducing that moved the art movement in, in, into more of the sur- surrealism I surely like that section of your book. It's... Well, I'm not sure what your question is. Oh, were the uh, mannequins and ventriloquists, uh, the talkie Tina, uh, was that all part of the surrealism that Rod was developing for you know, the show that uh, you know, really left a legacy with other artists. Yeah, well, you know, the television, you got to remember, is built on the close-ups. And it dealt with, with people, with figures. And identity and you know these existential themes of the twilight zone just like in art are acted out with the human figure with dummies with mannequins um and by having this kind of um puppet theater that the twilight zone was it was like a black and white little puppet theater and it dealt with people and with that kind of high contrast black and white look it reduced things down to their essential uh, nature as objects. And in dealing with questions of identity, 
there were multiple episodes with duplicates and dummies and robots. And these are all philosophically visual reflections of our concerns about identity and our place in the world and, and our bodies themselves. You know, there was one Twanson episode which dealt with people confronting their own dead bodies. That's a very heavy, existential, right. uh, surreal confrontation. And the idea that you yourself um, could be a, a mannequin come to life or a robot, you know, these all bring up questions of identity. And if you think about Magritte's many images where we're looking at the backs of people's heads and even Roy Lichtenstein did a self-portrait with himself as a blank image. Um, this idea of projecting identities onto blank images um, is, is what we ask ourselves as human beings. You know, look at Jordan Peele's new movie, Us, last year, which was basically a two-hour elaboration of the Twilight episode Mirror Image, which is all about confronting yourself, a duplicate of yourself, and what that would be like. You know, confronting yourself as a dead body, confronting yourself as a duplicate, Confronting yourself when nobody knows who you are, but you know who you are. These are, again, questions of identity. And the visual correlations of those questions are the many robots, dummies, mannequins, uh, automaton episodes of the Twilight Zone that we're still seeing reflected in the fantasy and science fiction movies. You know, the TV show Westworld just debuted season three. Westworld is what? It's all about automatons, robots coming to life and and thinking they're human and acting human and being human. And these are ideas that are in one of the very first Twilight Zone episodes called The Lonely, about the prisoner on the asteroid who gets the gift for his solitude of a human robot woman. Um, you know, that on the one hand, you know, from the sacred to the profane, it's, it's the idea of the sex doll that can actually come to life. But on the other hand, it's all about man's need for companionship, which was a running theme through Serling's work and isolation from reality, um, alienation from reality. These are all philosophical ideas that writers and essayists especially in the post-war era of the atom bomb when life could end at any second, it brought up all these questions of alienation. So that's why The Twilight Zone was this heavy-duty philosophical show, and it was reflected in its visual imagery. And Orlin, was the Twilight Zone one of the first if not the first uh, show to look at various forms of uh, time travel, like the Rip Van Winkle uh, caper, and uh, it, it is a uh, hundred yards over the rim. Is that the uh, the, the right title? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know. Both of those um, have va- variations of time travel. Uh, they get the uh, 
army uh, guys on the tank, and they were attacked by uh, Native Americans, by uh, little bighorners. Uh, it was some battle like I forget which one, but uh, you know it's a, another uh, example. It, it was that. It was this the show where time travel was first developed? Well, you got to remember, these are all stories written by science fiction authors like Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont, <laughs> as well as Serling. And a lot of them were adaptations of their own short stories from the 50s. Uh, the Twilight Zone comes out of a tradition of pulp science fiction that starts in the 1920s and 30s. And by the time we get to Serling in the late 50s, he loved reading science fiction, and he was a fan of Ray Bradbury and all those guys that started writing in the late 40s and early 50s, Robert Heinlein and Theodore Sturgeon. And they were all based out in California, and it was like kind of a clique. Science fiction was like a cult, and the writers in Los Angeles all belonged to a clique. Serling wasn't one of them. He, but, you know, in fact, they saw him as a bit of a dilettante kind of cherry picking their, their works. But what Serling did with the Twilight Zone, the ideas of parallel worlds and robots and automata, you can find all of those going back to Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. I mean, the history of science fiction. But the difference is Serling adapted them for this new medium called television. The idea that these were not two hour movies. These were half-hour anthology dramas that took these science fiction short stories that were only read by a cult-sized audience and brought them to a mainstream American and worldwide television audience. The change of medium, the change of the medium is the message. By converting them to television, he made them new as entertainments, as edutainments, to be teaching vehicles as well as entertainment vehicles. They were visual as well as they were verbal. They were television episodes. That transformed these stories and ideas. So no, Serling didn't invent time travel stories. Of course not. But on the Twilight Zone, they were for a new audience at a new time in a new form. And as we all know, television became the medium of our time as much as movies are a visual medium of our time. But in that medium of television, in that half-hour format, Serling and company were able to get across such a spectrum of those science fiction, horror, and fantasy ideas that made those ideas new for the medium, new for the era, new for the 1960s, and thereby translated these concepts from a cult audience to a wide audience that affected people who at the time were teenagers like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Stephen King and David Lynch and the creators of our modern fantasy and science fiction and horror all were Serling's metaphorical children who were all touched when they were teenagers by these concepts and ideas. They didn't read them in science fiction novels from 20 years before, or 10 years before. They saw them on the Twilight Zone. And that's why a lot of laymen don't understand that context change. It's like looking 
Weinstein took comic strips and painted them as paintings and put them in a museum, in galleries. That contextual change makes it into a work of art when you make a context change like that. That's the essence of pop art. What Serling did was cherry-pick these incredible science fiction stories. I mean, many of the greatest Clownsman episodes are <coughs> excuse me, adaptations, and then many of them are original for television. But Serling wrote, I mean, he's underrated as a great adapter of material, of prose verbal material into the television format. Some of the greatest Clownsman episodes, one of my favorite, Five Characters in Search of an Exit, about five characters in this circular void. You know, I mentioned the Twilight Zone was like an electronic puppet theater. Five Characters in Search of an Exit is exactly that. And it's this existential surreal story that Serling adapted from a young writer that I think stood outside his house for 24 hours until Serling would read his manuscript and he loved it and adapted it and became Five Characters in Search of an Exit. Um, so there's a perfect example of how, you know, Serling took something on the printed page and as an auteur, just like an auteur director, turned it into a work of television art that exists now as one of the great Twilight Zone episodes, whether you've read the short story or not. Just like a movie adapted from a novel has to work on its own as a work of cinematic art, whether you've read the book or not. And Arlen, you were just mentioning, you know, the new format of uh, television and, you know, we're familiar with the legacy of, uh, you know, the twist endings. Uh, But, you know, for example... uh, You know, by the way, Mario, let me just interrupt you there, because I didn't actually finish the idea that you started with, which is about time travel. Oh, okay. Go, go, Ser- keep, Serling, keep going. Serling's introduction to the Twilight Zone, that verbal introduction, a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. Time travel, time stories were a foundation of the Twilight Zone. And the very first season, um, so many of the foundation episodes were time travel episodes that, in my opinion, are the greatest time travel stories to appear in any medium, movies, you name it. Take an episode like Walking Distance, which is another one of those suburban, the Harry Madison Avenue execs that has to get away from the rat race. And he literally walks back in time and to his hometown and confronts himself as a child, which is another surrealistic confrontation with a duplicate of yourself except it's not dead and it's not an identical twin it's you as a child Mm -hmm. but that episode about confronting your past and dealing with your present is not only a timeless philosophical idea but i would maintain that that particular episode walking distance is i think the greatest time travel story ever created again whether literary or whether cinematic i would nominate that episode alone first of all at last year's serling um celebration the attendees voted greatest twilight episode and walking distance one 
And what's great about it, number one, is that it's not relying on special effects. You don't have any time travel you know, the, 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 the shifting of the television picture to look wavy like we've all seen in comedy skits. The, the greatest Twilight Zone episodes were not dependent on special effects or things like that. They were psychological. In, in Walking Distance, Gig Young, the actor who's Serling's doppelganger, basically, literally walks back in time, and the director shoots it through the mirror at a gas station where he trains the camera on the mirror that's on the gas station wall, and you can see the reflection of Gig Young walking away, but it looks like he's walking into the mirror, if you know what I mean. And that's a perfect example of how the Twilight Zone uh, visual creators, like the directors and the director of photography, utilize what television is best at these tight graphic close-ups and not being reliant on special effects. But in my opinion, walking distance, I call it the citizen chain of television. If you watch walking distance, especially the second half from the second, from the halfway commercial break to the end, it's the citizen chain of television. And what I mean by that if you think about Citizen Kane as the greatest movie ever made is because it's working at 110% on every creative level from the script to the concept, to the acting, to the photography, the dialogue, the act, everything about it. That's what makes it a great work of art. Well, in walking distance, especially the second half of the episode, those 15 minutes are to me, as great as Citizen Kane is, except for television. The acting, the concept, Serling's dialogue, the way the director shoots it, the music by Bernard Herrmann, who did all of Hitchcock's music. <laughs> we haven't even talked about that. But the, the score that Herrmann composes for Walking Distance is this melancholy, wistful whine of strings that underscores the very futility of trying to recapture your youth. It's this wistful whine of strings that if you know Herman's music, that he so utilized strings to get across emotional uh, apogees in, in, in the film itself is just, again, worthy of, of Citizen Kane-like comparison. And I can't say enough, but so many great episodes of The Twilight Zone were about time travel because it was the foundation of The Twilight Zone itself. And I maintain the best of them. You know, movies have done time travel episodes. There's been a whole slew of them. Peggy Sue got married and big and 18 again. And, you know, you name it. The time traveler's wife somewhere in time. Uh, Woody Allen did one recently, you know, with Paris, uh, Midnight in Paris, which was like another version of a Twilight Zone episode. Everybody's done time travel. Nobody's done it better than Serling and company on the Twilight Zone. And since you were talking about uh, dealing with the past, uh, walking distance, uh, as an example, one of the episodes that so many uh, people rank very highly is uh, 
deaths had revisited just that's one of the most powerful episodes ever uh, to be on TV um, and Rod says at the end about we uh, cannot tear down the dock owls um, you know we have so many people uh, today who uh, want to just tear down anything they just disagree with uh, do, do, do you think Rod's message still is the best uh, approach so that we don't forget who the monsters are or you think we ought to tear down all the you know, just say Confederate statues or uh, spray paint uh, Plymouth Rock. Um, okay, so let's see. What is your question? Uh, do, do you think Rod had a better approach about not tearing down history versus today's philosophy of uh, destroying whatever we disagree with. Well, is that what you think today's philosophy is? Destroying what we don't agree with? What, yeah, what, what are you citing? You're, you're, are you talking about specifically Confederate monuments? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, someone spray paint the Plymouth Rock. Uh, there, there was a someone drove a car into a Easter Island um, Moai statue a couple weeks ago. I'm just, I'm just wondering thoughts on that subject might be. Well, if you're talking about, you know, you started with Death's Head Revisited, you know, to the viewers that are viewers, the listeners listening in, that was an episode about um, a Nazi commandant in 1961 revisiting a death camp that he was the commandant of 15 years earlier. And he confronts the kind of ghost of a Nazi concentration camp Jewish prisoner who kind of puts him through a metaphorical trial um, as only the Twilight Zone can kind of show that brings this guy back to his past in Twilight Zone form where he thinks he's back in the barracks during the Holocaust and in the end it kind of drives him insane and that is a sort of punishment and the doctor examining him at the end he's this quivering mass of blubbering insanity crawled in a fetal position on the ground somebody says why do we keep these dachaus up you know, why weren't they torn down years ago? Why do, we, why do we need to be constantly reminded? And the guy says, and it's Sterling talking through the doctor, and he says, they must always remain as reminders of man's inhumanity to man. So, you know, the reason why we have Holocaust museums, the reason why we have that recent museum of lynching, uh, I forget where they built that in Louisiana. It came out you know, a couple of years ago. Um, you know, 
if you're really comparing that to Confederate statues, you know, yeah, they're both commemorating something, but, you know, you can't have a blanket, you know, you got to take it on a case-by-case basis. You know, the idea of keeping Dachau up and keeping up a statue of, you know, Robert E. Lee, are they both the same things? You know, you got to get past the surface and, you know, um, and talk about the content and what is the purpose of keeping Dachau up versus what is the purpose of keeping Robert E. Lee up. And they're not the same exact things. So you can't apply a blanket thing that, oh, today's society is all about tearing down what you don't agree with. Well, you know, that's a very facile surface blanket statement to make when you have to look at the specifics, you know? So who is Dachau offending by being up? It's, gee, it's defending the neo-Nazis. That's who it's offending. But who is the statue of Robert Lee offending? Well, it's, it's offending every person that had to suffer under the Confederate system that was all about defending slavery. So are those two the same things? Is a death camp that put people to get to death and why we should remember that? Is that the same thing as a statue honoring a man who uplifted and defended that system? That's two different things. Okay. Uh, just uh, one to work in that, that powerful episode. Also in yeah, – yeah, your Twilight Zone book, and you talk about uh, some of the images from the series that influenced Laurie Anderson and D- David Byrne. Uh, yeah, you have some uh, musicians. Uh, you are big fans uh, uh, of the series. Um, you know, as we approach, you know, about forty-five minutes left in the show. Um, where does Bruce Springsteen fall into your love of twentieth uh, and twentieth twenty-first uh, century? pop culture well you know in addition to television and comics the other big influence growing up in the 60s of course was rock and roll and music and the radio and i was fortunate enough to be old enough to remember the beatles on ed sullivan and um, i was a little too young to be impacted by dylan at the height of his folk and early electric era So I came of age as a teenager and adolescent um, in the the early 70s. And by that time, the 60s were over, the 60s heroes of rock and roll, Jimi Hendrix, you know, Joplin and and, um, Jim Morrison, they were dead. And the early 70s was this kind of laid back, mellow era. That was when the California singer-songwriters, the James Taylors and the Carole Kings and you know, eventually the Eagles and all of that softer rock sound. And I love that kind of early Beatles, that energy, that, that, you know, that garage rock sound, 
I love the early Phil Spector songs that I remember, that wall of sound. And to me, the early 70s, I, you know, I was a big Elton John fan because he was playing rock and roll piano and a lot of his hit singles in the early 70s when soft rock um, singer-songwriter stuff abounded, a harder rock uh, feeling and a more kind of pop sound wasn't to be found anywhere. AM radio by the mid 70s was pablum, you know, the nights, the night the lights went out in Georgia and um, <laughs> God, I, you know, I know every song because when you're a teenager and all I had was my mom's AM radio, I learned the lyrics to so many horrible songs that I can probably recite to you. Precious and few are the moments <laughs> we two can share. I mean, I know the lyrics of every one of these horrible early 70s songs. And I didn't like the foppishness when Elton John became glittery. I didn't like that Mick Jagger prancing around um, in that very fey uh, glam rock era. So when Bruce Springsteen appeared in the mid-70s, he really was, you know, in his early years, he was a pre-punk. I mean, he was dressed like the Ramones before the Ramones even formed with a black leather jacket and the jeans and the sneakers. And then he had that, you know, scruffy Dylan look. But when I heard the song Born to Run, I was 17 years old in 1975 and driving my mother's uh, Valiant and it had an AM radio. And I'll never forget the song. I was the biggest Elton John fan at the time. And Bruce's first two albums weren't played by New York radio stations because Bruce's first manager, Mike Appel, alienated all the New York radio stations because they didn't play his first two albums. And Mike Appel did things like drop off bags of coal, literally, to the radio stations because they didn't play the first two albums. Philadelphia, Cleveland, Boston, these other cities got the first two albums and they were Bruce's early foundations that he built his career on, but not North Jersey, not New York. To this day, I blame those New York DJs because while I was listening to, you know, Crocodile Rock, I could have been listening to Bruce's first two albums. But <laughs> I digress. The point is, is the second I heard Born to Run one summer day in 1975, I could not believe what I was hearing coming out over that tinny AM radio from the opening drum burst, which sounded like Little Eva's locomotion, to, to the kind of James Bond, the twangy electric guitar, and then the saxophone solo. I mean, nobody was playing saxophone on AM radio in the early 70s. I mean, David Bowie was, and probably a little bit more, you know, but my point is, is that the thing that most got me by Bruce Springsteen hearing him over the radio with the song Born to Run was I never heard a vocalist that was singing like his life depended on it. And the emotion and the power in his voice, I had just never heard commitment like that in a singer. And, you know, if you were raised in the 60s, we heard all the great singers you know, um, in rock and roll. And it's not like I didn't know what great vocals were, but there was something about the passion and the commitment that I heard in Bruce Springsteen's vocals 
and then combined with that wall of sound and the James Bond guitar and the drums and the saxophone and then the screams at the end reminded me of Frankie Valli's, you know, O's at the end of every Four Seasons song. But it was just sung with a, with a determination and a, and a joie de vivre. I had to pull over my car and collect my thoughts because I couldn't believe what, what I was hearing. And then when I would eventually see Bruce Springsteen in concert and the people that see what he's become all these years later, you know, his first manager, his early manager, uh, John Landau, his second manager after Mike Appel, he was the leading records review editor of Rolling Stone. And when he saw Bruce Springsteen in 1974, who actually in the May of 74 debuted the song Born to Run, the night John Landau saw him, he came back and wrote that famous um, essay where he said, I've seen the future of rock and roll and it is Bruce Springsteen. And it came true. You know, you can't find another example in the history of 20th century culture where anybody made a declaration like that. Maybe when Joe Namath said that they'll win the Super Bowl and Super Bowl three is maybe the only prediction that is on the same level as John Landau's prediction that Bruce Springsteen would be the future of rock and roll. And guess what? He quit his job at Rolling Stone and became Bruce's manager to help make that proclamation a reality. And they succeeded. Bruce Springsteen did become the future of rock and roll. We're still talking about him. He can still sell out stadiums. <coughs> Everything that's happened with Bruce Springsteen, the whole Born USA thing, we all saw that in him in the early years. Do you know his first manager, Mike Appel, went to the Super Bowl in 1973, January of 73, when Bruce's first album is dropping, Greetings from Asbury Park. Mike Appel goes to the Super Bowl and says, I want my guy to sing the Star Spangled Banner. Well, the Super Bowl people looked at him like, who the F is Bruce Springsteen? And they kicked him out of his office. But Mike Appel had this vision of Springsteen that he could embody this American idea. So imagine Bruce Springsteen, a nobody from New Jersey, singing the national anthem rock and roll style at the 1973 Super Bowl. It would have caused a rift in the universe. But that shows you how visionary Mike Appel and then John Landau was, and then Bruce himself to become. I mean, can you imagine as a creative artist having that albatross around your neck that you now have to become the future of rock and roll because the head records review editor of Rolling Stone said that? Oh, and by the way, you were also called the New Dylan. Bruce had to live up to being both the new Dylan and the future of rock and roll. Well, guess what? He not only became the only new Dylan to become a new Dylan, I think he went beyond Dylan in terms of his rock and roll impact. And um, although that might be sacrilegious to a lot of Dylanologists out there, uh, we can have that debate anytime you want. I love Bob Dylan, but to me, Springsteen did become the new Dylan and I think went beyond Dylan's scope. But the point is, is um, Bruce Springsteen as a masculine male figure without being macho, but to me was this sort of super heroic presence. 
in the same way Captain Marvel was a combination of all those, you know, the, the gods, the wisdom of Solomon and the strength of Hercules and the wisdom of, you know, you know, each letter is, you know, the wisdom of Zeus and whatever. Bruce Springsteen is a kind of a combination of all of these great rock and roll individual elements. He's got the, the, you know, singular presence of an Elvis Presley, but he's got the lyrics equal to a Dylan. He's got the band and the positive spirit that I remember the Beatles had. And he can play guitar when he wants to with the greatest of them. So it's like Bruce, you know, the four pillars of rock and roll are Elvis, Dylan, the Beatles, and Jimi Hendrix. Bruce is not one of those four pillars, but he is the roof built over those pillars. And if you go to my website, there's a Bruce Springsteen icon. You'll find when you on the drop-down menu a 90-minute radio program that I put together a couple of years ago called Bruce Springsteen's Greatest Hits You've Never Heard. And it's basically a 90-minute radio program, something like you might hear on NPR, that I wrote, narrated, edited, and put together with my buddy, a sound engineer. That's basically all of his greatest outtakes, songs that he's given to other people. Bruce's greatest material, he's still primarily left off of his records. So if you listen to that, you'll get a big jolt of why I love Bruce Springsteen and what it is about him. But he's kind of has a, a kind of super heroic male iconic quality to him that I relate. And then in terms of his writing and his philosophy, um, you know, he's right up there with Rod Serling as one of the great American pop culture uh, writers. Is most of Bruce's original band still with him? Uh, His bass player, Gary Talent, is his oldest uh, living member. Then comes Max Weinberg, the drummer, and Roy Bitten that came a few years later. Uh, Steve Van Zandt is with him, and he was with him as a teenager in early bands. So, yeah, Van Zandt goes back longer than Gary Town, the bass player. Um, Clarence was there from the beginning, but he died in 2011. His organ player, Danny Federici, who was a big part of Bruce's Sound, died in 2008. Um, but by and large, uh, you know, Steve, Gary, Roy, Max, you know, that's the foundational sound ever since 1975, basically. Okay. And I enjoyed your uh, video about Bruce's. 1978 uh, Capitol Theater appearance. Uh, you know, 40 years after, you know, about 40 years after that uh, uh, concert. Why is it the like monumental concert of his career? So that's a show that took place. September 19th, 1978. So after Bruce does Born to Run, 
which puts him on the cover of Time and Newsweek in the fall of 75. He then gets into a lawsuit with that first manager, Mike Appel, over ownership of his music and his career. And that ends up being a two-year lawsuit that prevents Bruce from recording a follow-up album. Now, nowadays, you know, artists take years between albums, but it's no big deal because we live in a 24-hour entertainment consumer culture. But back in the 70s, if you were gone for three years like Bruce was between 1975's Born to Run and then his finally follow-up album, Darkness on the Edge of Town, three years later in 78, it was like an eternity. I remember reading articles in 1977, whatever happened to Bruce Springsteen. But he was embroiled in a lawsuit, and when he finally, in 1977, could start recording again, because he could only tour while the lawsuit was going on, he wrote songs that were reflective of what had happened to him. About re- He had to reclaim his career from the people that thought he had been a fluke. That a guy that was on the cover of Time and Newsweek must have been all smoke and mirrors. So he does Darkness in the Town, which, by the way, even though it's now considered not only a classic of Bruce's, but many polls rate it even higher than Born to Run. Um, that's how well considered it is. And yet, at the time, I remember the Village Voices review was called Born to Rerun. Uh, it wasn't as embraced as it was by the critics or the fans even. It was a much more melancholy, um, driven, singular vision album. Uh, and it was not as widescreen, so to speak, as Born to Run was. The songs were not these big canvases. They were tighter, more concise. And that was because that's what Bruce wanted. But so he goes out on tour in June of 78 and he has to basically reclaim his place in the rock and roll hierarchy. And to anybody old enough to have seen any of those 1978 shows knows that it is a unique tour, unlike all of his other tours, because Bruce and the band played with a type of ferocity um, and a verve because Bruce instilled in the band that they had to play at their peak to shut down any possible claim that he had been hyped. So we get to the end of the summer of 78. The tour is a success. He's, articles are written about him. He's reclaiming his place again. But there were still a lot of skeptics out there. So John Scherer, the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey, decides to have a series of three homecoming concerts in September of 78 that would kind of celebrate Bruce coming back to New Jersey after having been all across the country reclaiming his stature, which he was doing. And they decided to radio broadcast the show up and down the East Coast from Maine to Florida, giving Bruce at the time his single greatest audience, if you count all the people listening in up and down the East Coast, not just the tiny 3,000-seat Capitol Theater, which is no longer even there in Passaic, of course. Instead of making it a rock and roll landmark, they tore it down. But, you know, it was a small, tiny, rundown theater. And um, 
The point is, is I happen to know the guy that ran security for Cher, and he was the editor of Bruce Springsteen's first fan magazine called Thunder Road. And I met that editor, and I got to do some artwork for the magazine. And then I go to Rhode Island School of Design. I'm studying graphic design. I'm a, I'm a sophomore. And I get a call from my buddy, and he goes, Arlen, John Cher wants to have an illustrated marquee to celebrate Bruce's homecoming. Do you want to do it? And I was like, uh, let me check my schedule and see if I could fit you in. Yeah, so the point is, is I got to get six six-throw seats for this first show of the three that was being radio broadcast up and down the East Coast. Now, this is 1978, pre-video era. You know, you go into a concert now, there's video screens. Oh, yeah. There weren't video screens. You had to experience the show. But this is 1978. Artists are doing videos, mostly black and white. You know, video cameras were these giant things you, you held in your hands. The point is, I remember coming down the, the aisle of the show, and I saw these two white screens to the sides of this tiny theater-sized stage. And they were square screens. They weren't rectangles. And I was like, what are those for? Well, sure enough, John Sher had the prescience to videotape this concert that was being radio broadcast. Anyway, to anybody that knows the show, because the video is now, you can find it on YouTube. The radio broadcast was being mixed in the truck outside by Jimmy Iovine, who was Bruce's sound engineer on Born to Run in Darkness. He later became the head of Interscope Records with Dr. Dre, Jimmy Iovine. But he made his bones as Bruce Springsteen's sound guy. Anybody that's listened to the radio broadcast on bootleg, on DVD, on CDs over the years knows what an incredible show it was. The sound is unlike any other Bruce Springsteen show. And the video exists. You know, when you talk about Bob Dylan's greatest show, they talk about the Royal Albert Hall in 1966 in England. Well, there's a snippet of dark video from one song. Some of the greatest rock and roll shows by all the different greats are not documented. But thanks to John Sher's prescience, we have what might be, and I maintain, it is Bruce's greatest single show. And I've seen a bunch of Bruce shows ever since. And listen, he's the greatest live rock and roll performer in history. So he's done a lot of great live rock and roll shows. But I maintain... If the aliens came down and they had room on their spaceship for only one document about Bruce Springsteen, what are you going to give them? I'm going to give them Capitol Theater, 9-19-78. So over the last 40 years, I've written articles about this, I, essays. I've, I've talked about it with fans. And I got an opportunity a year ago to basically put together one of my uh, lectures where I took, in a sense, the greatest hits of the Capitol Theater, the videos of the best songs, and I, you know, bookended them with little verbal visual introductions, like I do my, what are called visual lectures, and um, it got videotaped, and it's on my website and on my YouTube channel, or if you go to the Bruce Springsteen part of my website, you'll see it there, and I got, it's like I've been carrying around these feelings about this show for 40 years and I was able to get them all out in a proclamation that basically says 
This is the single greatest show. And the reason why it sounds the greatest is because the commitment in Bruce's voice, the musicians, every single note is in place. Not that the E Street Band wasn't a tight band to begin with, but what makes this show the greatest show is that Bruce had something to prove that night. He had his largest audience, which included all of that New York media crowd that might have dismissed him, that didn't know him from the first couple albums. So Bruce knew by it being a radio show that he was making a document for eternity. And he had something to prove to his biggest audience to date. And he and the band laid it down for eternity that night. And it exists in both video and um, audio form, thank God. And we can judge it. And it exists as the lecture that is on my website for everybody to see now and judge for themselves. Yeah, and I think it was during... During that uh, video, where you said that uh, uh, what they did that night uh, really has the uh, arrangements really haven't changed since then, and it just uh, well, with what works. Well, the nineteen seventy eight tour, um, those songs he debuted that had become staples like mm-hmm. Badlands and Promised Land and Racing in the Streets, songs like that. Um, and those arrangements, those are basically, unlike Bob Dylan, who really rearranges songs all the time, and you know he'll play like a right. Rolling Stone 500 different times over you know the last 50 years now. But if you look at songs like Bruce's sort of classic repertoire, Jungle Land, Thunder Road, Born to Run. Once that 1978 version of the E Street Band gelled, they basically played, with, with, with the exception of some flourishes here and there, you know, those are the foundation arrangements that he's still playing to this day. You know, Thunder Road, before 1975, went through many permutations. And there's an acoustic version that I play on my radio show, Bruce Springsteen's Greatest Since You've Never Heard, that make you think, what is the real Thunder Road? Is it the one on the album, or is it this acoustic version from the studio that prefigures what Bruce would do on Nebraska in 1982? But Bruce does it in 1975 in the studio, but doesn't release it. And that version of Thunder Road is the complete opposite of the version on the album. And that makes it kind of Dylan-esque in that sense. But in concert ever since 1978, the version of Thunder Road he now plays, the full band version, is pretty much the same arrangement. So I love Bruce, but I wish that he was more like Dylan in that respect. I wish he would play around with his arrangements much more uh, violently, I would say, than he tends to kind of stick with the same basic arrangements. Again, he'll add a few little flourishes here and there, mm-hmm. but um, that's an area where I wish Bruce was more like Dylan. Okay. And, and uh, I don't really call it uh, just as something 
synchronistic. Uh, you, know, you also bring up that uh, John Hammond uh, signed Dylan and Bruce. Yeah, I, I, that, that, that's and you know, they they every once in a while uh, Dylan and Bruce uh, played uh, together. Yes, it was an interesting fact. I did. Well, you got to remember, John Hammond was a famous A&R guy that not only signed Bob Dylan, but also Billie Holiday and Aretha Franklin. And, you know, his his resume is like he's the greatest A&R guy of the 20th century. And to Mike Appel's credit, he was able to weasel um, an appointment to show John Hammond Bruce Springsteen. And if they ever make the Bruce Springsteen biopic, this has to be a scene because you can only do this in Hollywood, but yet it was real that Appel literally barged his way. I mean, his zeal for Bruce, he was like, he, he saw Bruce in Christ-like terms as the savior of rock and roll in the seventies. And Appel was like the John the Baptist in a way, if you know your new Testament, but he was, again, he had this vision that Bruce should play the star spangled banner in 1973, which predates Born USA by, you know, 11 years. So he was a visionary that so believed in Bruce that he barged his way into Hammond's office. Like you would see a scene out of a movie where they go right past the secretary into his office. And he's got Bruce looking scraggly like Dylan. Bruce is 23 years old. It's 1972, May. And Bruce has his acoustic guitar strung over his shoulder, not even in a case. And he's got the scraggly beard. And I don't know what Appel was dressed like, but, you know, the point is, is Appel goes up to Hammond with Bruce. And he goes, so, I heard you sign people like Bob Dylan, huh? Well, let's see if you really have ears. And when Hammond retold the story... Many times he said, you know, when that guy said that, I just wanted to throw him out on his ass. But he figured he got his way in here. I'll give the guy a listen. Anyway, Bruce plays the open. Now, so imagine all of a sudden, all eyes turn to Bruce. He's there with the legendary John Hammond. And Mike Appel basically just insulted Hammond. And now Bruce has to deliver. So this is what I mean about a scene out of a movie or out of a, a storybook. You can't make this up. But Bruce strums the opening bars of a song that would eventually wind up on its first album, Greetings from Asbury Park. And it's the last song on the album called It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City. And it opens up with the line, I have skin like leather and the diamond hard look of a cobra. Well, that song, as recounted by Hammond, he said Bruce sang one line from that song, and I knew he would last a generation. That's what Hammond said after Bruce played just the opening line of It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City. Like I said, Mark, you can't make this up. Hammond immediately arranged an audition for him to play live down in Greenwich Village with a gaslight and as luck would have it, about 10 years ago, a video, believe it or not, from that night emerged, and it's on YouTube from the Gaslight 
May 10th, 1972, something like that. And like I said, you know, that's one example. And then, you know, two years later, John Landau would hear Bruce play and go, I've seen the future of rock and roll. So everything that was said about Bruce came true. And it is really the great rock and roll story. Bruce is the rock and roll promise delivered. You know, when Dylan was at his peak, he burned out. He had the motorcycle accident, which was a metaphor for him being burned out creatively. He had done so many drugs. You know, Hendrix died before he was able to basically become um, recognized by a mainstream audience as the great American rock and roll guy. But he died too soon. And the Beatles broke up. And like I said, when Bruce emerges, he, he did save rock and roll. He opened the door to punk and new wave. Like I said, he predates the Ramones. You know, one of the outtakes I play on my radio program from 1973 in the studio, you can hear the organ sound that later Elvis Costello would adopt five years later. Bruce brings back the twangy guitar that the cars and Rico Kasich would build their whole sound around. Mm. And the careers of people like Tom Petty and John Mellencamp, Meatloaf, um, the list goes on and on of, you know, the whole alt-country movement comes out of Nebraska that Bruce puts out in 1982. So every claim that was made about him came true. And like I said, you can't find an example where the leading critic of an art form like John Landau becomes the personal manager of a leading proponent of the art form and then proceeds to live up to all those expectations and make the great art of that art form. Good luck. You can't find a parallel to the Bruce Springsteen story. And that's what makes it iconic and heroic because he's still just a guy from Jersey. I was a kid from Jersey, North Jersey. So when Bruce is the inspiration, (laughs) John Stewart became John Stewart because of Bruce Springsteen. You know what I'm saying? Bruce ended up becoming an inspiration to an entire generation literally around the world. You know, the movie that came out last summer about the, the um, Pakistani uh, emigre that, you know, blinded by the light that, you know, he grew up in England and, you know, the music of Bruce made him become a writer and they made a movie out of it. You know, that story was all of our stories. So all of us that were turned on by Bruce Springsteen, that is our story, whether you were in, Pakistan or whether you were from Patterson, um, Bruce became universal. Greetings from Asbury Park became an invitation to the world. And Arlen with... Uh, By the way, I want to make sure we plug my Silver Age book that people can uh, buy so I can help pay my bills, you know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, we have some time to do. Uh, go ahead and do do, do the plugging. I, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm saying whatever you want to ask me next. I'm just saying 
I want to make sure we talk about that. Okay, uh, I just have a quick question. You, you know, you've mentioned Clarence and Max, you know, these uh, names of unparalleled musicianship that your talents have been sought uh, for a long time. Um, you, know, you also talk about uh, uh, Bruce's uh, friendship with uh, Patty Smith, and uh, he he wrote her big song because the night. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, that that's like all, all part of those songs that ha- have become the song that so many bands are named for, you know, like "Blinded by the Light," and uh, they all go back to uh, Bruce. Uh, but but what was going on when he's getting started? You know, Patty's. Uh, you know, trying trying to get her foot in the door in the music world. What what's going on there, and how does she end up with uh, because of the night? So Bruce is recording "Dark and Sunny Edge of Town" in 1978, mm-hmm. or in 77/78, and that's the same time that Patty is recording her second album, "Easter," which was the follow up to her first album that came out in 76. And Bruce's sound engineer, who I mentioned before, Jimmy Iovine, was the producer of Patti Smith's second album, Easter. And so he's, they're in the power of, uh, what was it called? Um, The record plant in New York City. So in one room, Bruce uh, Iovine is sound engineer in darkness, and then he's going to another room and producing Patti's album. And Bruce was recording all these songs for Darkness, and he ends up only picking 10 to put on the album, but he must have wrote and recorded like 50 songs, and many of them are brilliant and great, and that's a whole other subject. But Jimmy knew that Bruce wasn't going to use the song that he had put together a pretty full band demo of called Because the Night. And Ivine thought, Bruce, if you're not going to use this, can I give it a Patty? I think she'd do a great version of it. It could be a great, you know, the, the, the album, Patty's album needed like a hit single. And I find thought because the night would be great. So he takes the tape. Bruce gives us. Okay. And the lyrics were half written and the other half of the lyrics in this demo version of Bruce and East street band, he kind of mumbles through, but they're placeholders that he would eventually write lyrics for. So he gives it, to Iovine, and Iovine gives it to Patty, but Patty was resistant to it for months. And she was going through a separation. She was in New York, but her husband, Fred Smith, was in Detroit. And they were having a long-distance relationship, and they couldn't be together, so they had to, you know, talk to each other on the phone and wait and wait. And one night, she's really missing her husband, Fred Smith, and Patty decides to put on this cassette finally after months of Iovine haranguing her. Have you listened to the tape yet? And finally she puts it on. And Patty's recounted this in her memoirs and on stage. But she basically said the moment she heard 
that opening piano and those opening lines, um, it's essentially a love song by Bruce because the night belongs to lovers. And Patty just, it was, it was her situation, being separated from her husband, uh, you know, 3,000 miles away and missing him. And, you know, um, um, you know, love is a ring, the telephone. That was her lyrics that she wrote on top of Bruce's melody. And she only kept the chorus because the night belongs to lovers. And the rest is history. I'll never forget. I was at Rhode Island School of Design in the dark room developing photographs in the spring of 78. And we're all waiting for news. When is Bruce's album going to come out? Because we had been waiting since 1976 for this album. And here it is, 78, and still no album. So back then, in the pre-internet days, you kids listening in, you had to wait until the news that when the record would come in the record stores. So there was a radio playing in the dark room, WBCN out of Boston, great rock and roll radio station. And I'll never forget, I'm developing in the dark room, and I hear the opening piano, if you know the song, Because the Night. It's got that classic, distinctive um, arpeggio, I believe it's called, of those, you know, that up and down scale. Well, I can't really imitate it, but you know what I mean. The minute, the second I heard those opening piano notes, I said to myself, that's a Bruce Springsteen song. Before Patty even opened her mouth, I knew that was a Bruce song. And, of course, how can you not instantly love the opening piano chords of Because of the Night? And, like I said, the rest is history. So that's how that happened. Okay. And, by the way, the royalties from Because of the Night for Patty Smith ended up enabling her to live outside the music system for 10 years after that while she took care of her dying husband, Fred Smith, over a 10-year period, raised her kids, and she said, I was only able to do that thanks to Because the Night. Another, wow. great, another great Bruce Springsteen story that you can't make up? Oh, I got a bunch of them. I got a bunch oh, of them. Um, I think you have to come back and tell us more uh, I told you. So, so, sometime soon. Yeah, uh, we we have four minutes or so left. Uh, you know, plug away at all of your uh, websites, uh, book titles, and you know, Bar- Barbara, stand by to wrap up the show. Well, basically, if you go to my website, arlenschumer.com, it's linked from the homepage to all my other social media as well as my merchandise site popcultureman.com for posters and t-shirts of my illustrations and uh, my book, The Silver Age of Comic Art, which is only the greatest book about comic book history ever. And I can only say that because I have every previously published book. They're all text heavy with little reproductions. My book is the only book that's about the art. And again, supplemented by the words of the artists themselves talking about the art. You can get a signed and sketched in by me hardcover through my website, or I have a dedicated site, the silver age of com, And I draw a sketch in the book and you get it directly from me. Um, my book visions from the twilight zone is out of print, but you can still find it on Amazon because it's linked to the secondhand book sites. And um, 
that's really, uh, and then, like I said, go through my website, all the links to my YouTube channel, my videos of my lectures and other projects are there. Basically, my whole life is on my website, trust me. Uh, Facebook friend me. I run three comics history groups on Facebook, uh, one on the Silver Age based on the year of my book, one on Jack Kirby and one on Neil Adams. Um, and I think you'll, if you enjoy comic history, you'll enjoy those participating in those forums. And, uh, you know, through my social media, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, and I don't hide behind pseudonyms. It's usually Arlen, Arlen Schumer. But like I said, everything is linked from the homepage of my website. So thank you for having me tonight. The two hours went like nothing, Mark, I told you. Oh, yeah. It, it was. Uh, seems like we have about another hour uh, left to uh, go. But uh, like Stop me when you've heard enough, remember? Okay, okay well, uh, we're getting close to that time. But uh, you, you know, there is another – uh, Twilight Zone conference scheduled for August 28th, 29th, and 30th in Binghamton, New York. Uh, are you going to be there? If I should be there, yeah. Yeah, uh, depending on the uh, you know virus situation, but well, uh, yeah, you know, ho- hopefully it's awesome. uh, done r- r- real soon. But uh, yeah, just to. Uh, you know, keep up, uh, up to date on the you know the schedule for that. People can go to rodserling.com dot and you know uh, maybe you'll be there this year. Uh, you know, is there anything else uh, you want well, to plug? I should be. I usually lecture at the San Diego Comic Convention um, again, depending on the virus. That should be happening in mid July. So they usually accept one of my lectures. Uh, I'm hoping that they do this year because that's the only way I get to go. If I had to buy a ticket like everybody else, I'd never be able to buy one because they sell out in like 30 seconds. So hopefully I'll be at San Diego. And if I'm at any other venues, I'll announce those through my Facebook um, personal page, my groups, or on my blog through my website. All righty. Uh- I think your books are terrific. I enjoyed them. I enjoyed ha- having you on tonight, and we're going to have to do this again. And it's Anytime. time for Barbara to wrap up the show. So c- c- step on in, Barbara. Okay, stepping in. I want to thank both of you. It's been a really cool evening. I thoroughly enjoyed the show. Uh, and it will be up on YouTube tomorrow, so everybody check that out too, and do check out the YouTube channel. Give us a give us a uh, subscribe if you have a, an inkling too. We always uh, appreciate those who subscribe to the channel, and don't forget to tune in next Monday and Tuesday for more of Mark's and mine trying to um, educate, enlightening, and um, entertain all of you. Good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us.